Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. I would now like to introduce a duo that really needs no introduction. Uh, Dr. Valerie Steele, the Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, is going to be in conversation with the one and only Tim Gunn. So please join me in welcoming them to the stage. Valerie and I do this often, but not on this topic. Yes. This is a first for us. This is a first, but we have done lots of conversations. Yes. So I wanted to start with this historic image at before and after the corset because it reminded me of an issue which is very much alive today. At this time, a French 19th century doctor said, quote, a woman in a corset is a lie, but we prefer the lie to the truth. <laughs> and they give examples, you know, this one at the bottom, two skinnies, they say underneath, no breasts, no hips, no nothing. So you give her a padded corset and she becomes something. Others, too plump, the waist is too short. You know, there's the one in the center, they say, oh, she's magnificent, but unfortunately her breasts are starting to fall. So this harness will make them acceptable. Similarly, with this one, different kinds of women and girls are associated with different corsets. And the one in the center, doesn't wear a corset. She just wears a, a silk knitted undershirt. And it said, to do without a corset is best, but it's so rare that you can do that. Most people's bodies are just too flawed to get away with that. The ideal at this point in the late 19th century was a very voluptuous figure, but with a small waist. It really was, though, a big figure. So, for example, one famous 19th century uh, pornographic autobiography stated, no man will stay long with a woman whose skinny buttocks he can hold in the palm of one hand. <laughs> he, wants a, he wants a big, big bottom, but a small waist, or at least a small waist compared to the hips, what uh, anthropologists call a waist-hip differential. By the beginning of the 20th century, even as people are still moving very gradually from this voluptuous Venus ideal to a slimmer and more athletic Diana ideal, uh, people start to say that they don't need to wear a corset. That's what this actress says. They ask, who's your favorite corseteer? She said, I don't need to wear a corset. You look at the photo and you go, babe, you are wearing a corset. <laughs> but yes. it's already starting to seem that only if you're old or fat should you have to wear a corset. You should otherwise have a perfect body, whether through diet, exercise, or genetics. As time goes on and we move further into the 20th century, the ideal becomes increasingly slim, and then increasingly slim and athletic. For brief moments, you have little bits of body diversity in as much as you start to have women of color appearing in fashion shows and as fashion models. But these things seem to come and go in waves. And increasingly, the overall tendency has moved 
further and further so that if you go to fashion shows today, it's almost all very young, skinny white girls, almost exclusively on the runway. So, even when you have the idea of a more curvy body, you still have this idea that somehow waist training is still an option. So they, they tout these waist trainers, which are sort of modernized courses, which claim that if you wear them while you're exercising, they'll magically melt all the fat away, and it will go away permanently. Whereas, of course, just like a whalebone corset, you can move the fat around, but you take the corset off, and it goes back where it was. So, our conversation today is going to be about how do you deal with sort of centuries of attitudes that women's bodies are not good enough, that it's rare that you have someone who is okay the way they are. And how, how do we respond to that in a way that has an impact on the industry and on our own psyches and our friends around us? Well, and I want to add uh, one dimension to this, Valerie, which is so much of this also has to do with perceptions of sexuality. Of course. Yes, and that pulls at many different heartstrings and um, conjures up uh, uh, just additional dimensions of, of body image and um, how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us. Um, and it's... The, the good news is, and, and we're certainly not going to turn this whole topic around in uh, a, a swift amount of time, but the good news is we're talking. Yes. I mean, at least this is now out in the open and it's in people's vocabulary, uh, vocabularies and... Um, the conversation has started, and I don't believe for a moment that it's going to halt. Um, I don't think it's going to go away, like that issue of Vogue from the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, admittedly, it's very, very complicated. And, and I won't say that it's, it's limited to a single gender. It's, it's, it's true for men as well. Um, I, I had a, an experience at Saks Fifth Avenue, this goes back about seven years. I wanted to buy a Burber, Burberry tuxedo, yes. and the sales associate, someone I had worked with for a long time, and, and he knew me and I knew him, and he said to me, I'm, I won't bring it to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I don't, you, you don't want it. I said, no, let me just try it on. I mean, admittedly it was expensive, but I thought, let me see what it feels like. <laughs> So, we had this tug of war over this tuxedo, and eventually I won. And I realized quickly why the sales associate didn't want me to experience it. I could not get the pant leg over my calf. I thought, what, what is this for a 15-year-old with mm -hmm. an eating disorder? I mean, truly, it was very demoralizing, and I asked him, how many of these do you even have in stock? Who can possibly buy these? He said, a 15-year-old with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. yep. So it's, it's a very peculiar world that we live in in, in so many different ways. Um, but <laughs> in particular in this way, because yeah. it, as, as um, uh, we heard from Emma, I mean, so much of this has to do with how we perceive ourselves. Yes. And... Um, I'm always talking about the semiotics of clothes. The clothes we wear send a message about how the world perceives us. Mm -hmm. And we need to be responsible for that. And the more choices we have, the more options we have, um, 
the more we can control that. And there are women and men, but there are certainly women uh, in a, a size category who have so few options available yes. to them that they're, they may not be projecting exactly who they are, who, how they'd like to be perceived. And in these times of, uh, of I'd like to say, inclusivity, um, that depends hugely upon where you are, both geographically and financially and politically yeah. in many, many ways. Um, but I'd like to, to think that all women have uh, the same number of options, that there is um, inequality in that and that people aren't discriminated against. But we know that's not the case. Yes, I mean, this would be the ideal. This, this example of a dress that Christian Siriano made for an actress who couldn't find anyone who was willing to make her a red carpet gown. Horrifying. Which is horrifying. And of course, most of us don't have the occasion to wear a red carpet gown, but many, many people, when they find out I'm in the fashion world, come to me and say, I can't find anything in my size or because I have really big breasts. Well, who, what brand can I find? Is there anybody? And there have been really relatively few designers who have even been willing to experiment with making larger sizes. This is, is from an image from Sophie Taylor whose uh, runways have always been very diverse in terms of race, body type, age. Um, but that's quite uncommon. There are yes. many, many designers who, whether because of prejudice or because it's too complicated, it's difficult to size up beyond a certain point, it's more expensive, are not willing to do it. Well, that is true. I, when I left Parsons, I, I was at uh, Parsons for 24 years. I never intended to leave, but I ended up going into um, the private sector. I was at Liz Claiborne, Inc. when it had 48 brands, um, incredibly diverse. And I spent a lot of time on the road uh, doing fashion shows in malls and mm -hmm. various places, and I loved it. Um, and what I loved about it was interacting with the people who would attend. And I heard repeatedly from women who were larger than a size 12, this industry doesn't address me. This industry doesn't care about me. And I said, I'm taking your words back to the, to the headquarters. And I met with the, design, the head, head designers across the brands who said to me, with the exception of the Liz Claiborne brand, who said to me universally, I'm not interested in her. Yes. What do you mean? I don't want her wearing my clothes. That's right. That's what they say because it's like a contamination effect. Yes. If it's not someone who has the body they think is beautiful and sexy, they don't want them associated with their brand. And one designer who shall remain nameless, a model came in who was maybe a size 12, and he said, I don't dress furniture. Oh, my God. Oh, I, I don't even have a response to that kind of outrage. Yeah. That's, and, and I have to say, my retort to these designers saying, I'm not interested in her, look at the opera divas. How fabulous are they? I'm not talking about what they're wearing on yeah. the stage, what they're wearing when they're going to the grocery store. Yes. Fabulous. And they're not diminutive women. Exactly. And I would be willing to bet that many opera divas have the same problem, except that they maybe can find a dressmaker who will custom exactly. make it for them. Because most opera singers 
work very, very hard and don't make a lot of money. Exactly. And if they're, I've seen many, many musicians and singers who clearly have what you might call loving hands at home clothes on stage that they've made themselves for recitals or their mother has made. So I know part of the issue is if you can make clothes yourself, you can make it perfectly to fit you. Otherwise, though, you're, I'm hoping that through the internet it will be easier to at least find those brands that are more enlightened, which will create a variety of things in a variety of sizes that are not just either super cheap or super expensive. Exactly. And, and I say to uh, women, men, regardless of size, shape, age, the key to getting our fashion right has to do with three elements. And they are silhouette, proportion, and fit. And when right. they're in harmony and balance, you'll look great in anything. Yeah. It's not about a particular item. Um, it's not about 10 essentials that should be in your wardrobe. It's about silhouette, proportion, and fit. And too many women, and God knows too many men, and most of them are in Capitol Hill, um, <laughs> they wear... Ill-fitting Ill suits. Yeah, <laughs> they wear clothes that are too big for them. Yeah. And I'm always saying the more volume your clothes have, the more volume you appear to have. Yeah. So it's, it's, fit is so critical in this, and, and I'll repeat, regardless of size. Yeah. Well, that really is crucial, and that's something where you can easily find someone in a dry cleaner or a, a seamstress near you who can make the clothes fit. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, probably there's hardly anything that you buy that you don't need to take in and have someone fit, no I, matter what size you are. Precisely. Everyone benefits from from having alterations. It's very, very true. Um, I, I, this is your conversation, but, but if I may lead with something. I, I had uh, a sort of epiphany this past summer when we were taping season 16 of Project Runway. We had, if any of you saw the last season, last season show, thank you. <laughs> we had models who ranged in size from two to 22. Yes. And our first runway show, episode one, I was backstage with the models, and it was very emotional. And I asked them, what, what's responsible for all this? And they said, we've never been together. I said, what do you mean? They said, we're always marginalized. The, 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 the skinny models are, are in that show, we plus models are in this show, and to, to be coexisting, here and being on, the run, being on the runway together is such an extraordinary moment for us. And I also used the opportunity of last season to ask the uh, plus size models, ladies, can we do something about this term? Because for yeah. me, I have found plus size to be rather pejorative. Yeah. But you know, I have to tell you something. I had this huge wake up call. The, the larger model said to me, we like the term. We want to change the, how the world perceives ah, the term. Okay. And I was fascinated by that, fascinated. They said, it's accurate. We're, we're plus sizes. And we stand by it. Interesting. It was interesting. Yes. I was very disarmed. Well, this, of course, comes so often with their plus sizes in terms of what the sizing is in the industry. Well, and of course, we also know it's the lying, deceptive shell game of vanity sizing. That's right, exactly. You know, when I was at Parsons, um, I took over as chair of the fashion program in 2000, and we had these old, decrepit, 
dress forms, and I thought, we, we need to get some new equipment in here. And by 2002, I was successful. And the size eight dress forms arrived. It was, generally speaking, we use six and eights. Yes. And I thought, these dress forms look much larger than what we've had hanging around here since the 1970s and 80s. They were old ones. The, the older dress oh, forms. There was a three-inch difference in the size of the waist yeah. of the 2002 size 8 dress form compared to 1981. Yeah. And it was a demonstration of the lying deceptive shell game of vanity sizing. Mm -hmm. For retailers, they don't want women to, to walk in and say, well, I've always been an 8, and now suddenly I'm a 10 or I'm a 12, and I'm not going to buy this dress. I'm going to go home and diet. Well, yes, and it becomes a pattern because people go, well, but Marilyn Monroe was a size 14. Size 14 then was more like what a size 8 would exactly. have been. Exactly. And now the, what the size 8 would have been is now being called a size 6 or yes. something because people want it to seem smaller. Yes, and that's a whole other dimension to this conversation that is um, filled with, I'll just say it, conspiracy against women who are larger. Well, it's starting to shift to menswear, too. Men's at least used to always be the waist is 32 inches, whatever, the, the length of the leg. Now they have a sizing for those, which is very confusing uh, and deceptive. I'll, I'll vouch for that. It's very confusing, which is why I find it's difficult to shop online unless it's a brand that you know very well, because how do you know what size you actually are? You have no idea. You have, you have no you idea. You have no idea. It could yeah. be anywhere, anywhere within a range of 10 sizes, depending exactly. on which brand it is. Some people would say maybe appropriate's not right for everyone, that some people specifically want to be inappropriate to say, I don't want you to say you shouldn't wear this because you're older or because you're a plus right. size, that for a lot of people, being body positive means saying, I'm going to wear it anyway because it feels good. Exactly. I, and I will also say, it, it's, it, it's something Emma said earlier, it's very hard to separate the garment from the person wearing it. And I have a very Socratic approach to most things, but particularly to, to fashion. I pummel people with questions. And I'm, I'm fond of saying that person in the middle of the room who's dressed like a circus clown, maybe they are. <laughs> <laughs> or it's come to Garcon. They're really chic. Thank you very much. Thank you all.